hit the subscribe button or visit us at auau.auanet.org. Good afternoon and welcome to the AUA's educational program on the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services 2020 Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS. Thank you for taking time out of your day to join us. I'm Jennifer Birch with the AUA, and joining me are Patrick Hamilton with CMS and my colleague Suzanne Pope from the AUA. Before we begin, let me go over some housekeeping items. All attendees will be placed on mute throughout today's webinar. If you wish to submit a question, please type it into the question box or email quality at AUA.org. We will answer all questions as time allows at the end of the presentation. Today's session is being recorded. The presentation as well as all answers to all submitted questions will be posted on the AUA's website. All attendees will be notified when this information has been posted. If you have questions following today's presentation, email them to quality at auanet.org. Now let me turn things over to Patrick to begin the webinar. Thanks, Jennifer. Uh, my name is Patrick Hamilton with CMS Philadelphia. Uh, it's great to be back with you. I believe this is the third year that we are doing our QPP webinar for you folks, so I'm happy to be here. Uh, a little bit of sad news, Dr. Barbara Connors, who was our chief medical officer, has retired at the end of December, so I am flying solo in terms of the webinar and uh, presentation and handling questions. Jennifer did send uh, a number of questions uh, last week that I was able to get some background on, so I was, I'm hoping to be able to answer most of those, and I'll do my best to answer the questions during the Q&A session at the end of the presentation. But again, if you have questions that I cannot answer, we have uh, many options to get them to us and get the answers back out to you. In the room with me, I have uh, my new team. We recently had a reorganization at CMS. I am now part of the Local Engagement and Administration Group, group, LEA group. I know it's LEA, still getting used to the new alphabet soup. But we have Sharon Graham. Uh, Monique Scott, Debbie Thierman, and Fung Tong, who have been doing uh, beneficiary-faced uh, outreach for a number of years. And uh, all of the outreach is now under uh, one umbrella, and we are happy to be working together. So they're here, too, to learn some more about QPP, and hopefully through osmosis and hearing me drone on enough about this, <laughs> that this is going to be a piece of cake for everybody. So it's going to be a big learning experience for everyone. So we start all of our presentations. This is a general uh, disclaimer that this is a tool to assist you. It is not to take the place of CMS regulations, laws, anything official. It's still in the regulations, final rules, uh, et cetera, et cetera. This is just general uh, summary information, and we always default to the rules and regulations for program programmatic guidance, though I'm pretty sure that everything in here is accurate, but we always put that disclaimer out there. So even though we are going to be focusing most of our time on the quality payment program, I want to start by making sure that everybody is aware of the changes that were finalized as it relates to office and outpatient visits in the E&M code starting in calendar year 2021. Um, just a little bit of a, of a brief history. If you remember in 2018, we had proposed some pretty big changes to the coding structure for the E&M codes that are associated with outpatient visits. 
And if you remember back in, uh, in the fall of 2018, we had proposed that we were going to collapse the traditional one through five level codes into um, a set of two codes. Uh, and then three codes for certain patients, whether they were new versus established patients. And when we finalized that in the 2019 final rule, we did so with the caveat that we were going to continue discussions with our external partners to make sure that what we were proposing and finalizing for the 2019 rule uh, actually made sense and was going to be uh, the way that we should go. So we used 2019 to continue our partnership specifically with the American Medical Association and the CPT, or the Current Procedural Terminology Editorial Panel, uh, to have more discussions. And the AMA CPT panel came up with a set of recommendations that basically um, took the original five-level structure and made modifications to it, but did not suggest or recommend that we collapse them as we had. So we proposed uh, last year in the summer of 2019 uh, that we would adopt what the AMA CPT editorial panel came up with, which basically was retaining the five levels of coding for established pa patients and four levels of coding for new patients. Um, basically, uh, through the comments, we were almost so universally that that was a good idea. People were very skittish, to say the least, about the idea of collapsing those codes. So what we did for the 2020 physician fee schedule rule was to basically adopt what the AMA CPT editorial panel had suggested, also made some alterations, uh, some definitions. Everything that the, or a good summary of what the AMA has recommended is on the link that is here. And I believe that you will have an electronic copy of this presentation. All the links should work. I did test them out this morning. So you should be able to link on that CPT email webpage that'll take you to the AMA. But for our purposes, I'm gonna give you the summary of revisions that you would find on that link. So these are the five big um, revisions that are being made. So we are going to be eliminating the history and physical as the sole elements for code selection. So we know that physicians' work in capturing the patient's history and performing the relevant exams contributes to both the time and the medical decision-making. It should not be the alone determinant of, code, of the code level. Uh, we're also going to allow physicians to choose whether documentation is based on medical decision-making or total time. And we made some revisions to uh, those definitions. The work group did not change the three current medical decision-making subcomponents, but did uh, provide some edits to the elements of code selection. Also for time, we changed the def or the definition of time is minimum time and not typical time. And that's actually gonna represent the total time that the physician or other qualified healthcare professional uh, spent with the patient on the date of service. Uh, we made some modifications to the criteria for decision or for medical decision making. Uh, we're removing ambiguous terms such as mild. We are also defining important terms such as independent historian. We are deleting CPT code 99201. And the panel did this because 99201 and 99202 are both straightforward, straightforward medical decision making and they're only differentiated be, uh, by the history and the exam elements. And since we are eliminating those as sole um, determinants of code selection, 
they agreed that the codes were now duplicative, so 99201 is, will be no longer. And we're also creating a shorter prolonged services code of 15-minute increments, which more accurately captures uh, the add-on times. Now, these revisions are going to go into effect, as you can see, for calendar year 2021. So this is the year to make sure that you understand these changes. The AMA is going to be, I understand, hosting educational seminars in the spring and in the, in the summer. As soon as we get information about those educational seminars, we'll make sure that that information is pushed out to you. I will be uh, advertising and, and encouraging everyone to sign up for CMS's listservs when we go into the question and answer portion. Uh, the listserv is the fastest way to get all information relevant from CMS. Um, you, might all, you might even be complaining that we're giving you too much information because mm -hmm. the listserv is that robust. But in all seriousness, if you're not on the CMS listserv, make sure that you do that. A couple of other things before we move on to QPP. We're adopting the values for the new codes and the add-ons for prolonged service time. And on the next slide, we'll actually show uh, what those values are. Uh, we are going to be consolidating and increasing the payment for add-on codes for visits for primary care and non-procedural specialty care into a single code describing the work associated with visits that are part of ongoing comprehensive primary care and or visits that are part of ongoing care related to a patient's single series or complex chronic condition. We had talked about adopting changes and making some changes to global surgery codes, but we opted not to implement them for calendar year 2021. Slide seven gives an estimate, and again, these are approximate estimates um, <clears throat> for what the current payment is. And I believe that when this table was written, this was for the 2020 rules, so these are 2019 figures, I believe. So the current payments were the level one through level five for new patients and established patient, patients, and then what the approximate finalized payment would be. Now, these will likely change. I would suspect it'd probably be a couple of dollars higher because our estimates, when we uh, propose and finalize them in 2020 for next year, we'll have the updated figures. But this should give you just an idea of how the payments are going to be increasing for each level of service for both current and for established patients. I'm sorry, for new patients and for established patients. I talked about the prolonged service codes. That add-on code will be approximately $22, and then the primary care add-on code will be approximately $15. Again, those are estimates, and they could possibly and likely will uh, change a little bit. All right, so now let's move into the meat and potatoes of the presentation. We're going to talk about the quality payment program. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about our performance data that we got for 2018. And that performance for 2018 uh, tells us what you are being paid in 2020 because of our two-year look-back period. I'm going to briefly just give you some resources for what you need to do for your 2019 participation because now we are in the period where you are submitting your data for the 2019. So I'm going to make sure that you have your resources for the portal. And uh, portal might look a little bit different. We made some modifications to it. So there's a few screenshots in there just so that you're comfortable and know what you're going to. But we're not going to go through a walkthrough or a demo of the, of the actual portal. But there are a lot more resources for data submission this year than there have been in years past, including videos. So I'm going to share links with you with all that. And then we'll uh, talk about what 
is on the horizon for 2020 and then get into our new exciting MIPS value pathways, which will start in 2021. So we're gonna cover four years of QPP stuff in about 45 minutes. Hold on to your hats, it's gonna be exciting. I say facetiously. All right, so what you're looking at on slide number nine, this is a very um, high level overview of the performance of clinicians and groups, individuals and groups for the 2018 of QPP year. So 2018, if you remember, was year two. We continue to have um, lesser stringent uh, requirements for the program. We continued the, uh, the on-ramp that 2017 was. If you remember for 2018, the score, the composite score that you had to achieve in order to avoid a payment adjustment was 15 out of 100. So let's like take a look at the numbers. 98% uh, of all eligible clinicians, whether individuals or groups, uh, received a positive adjustment, which means that they received a score of 15 or higher. And that was actually a couple of percentage points higher than the first year where the score was only three. So we actually upped the percentage uh, slightly. 0% um, hit just 15. I mean, you really have to be a really good sharpshooter to get that of uh, 15 bullseye, uh, and then just 2% received a negative payment adjustment, which means they um, scored below 15. But what that probably means, uh, because of the way that the program was set up, it was really difficult to submit data, any amount of data, and not get 15 points. Those are probably the, the individuals and the practices that chose not to participate in 2018. So we have a lot of information in terms of the mean and median, and I'll explain why that's important in a few slides. 84% not only scored above 15, but they also scored above the exceptional performance mark. Now the exceptional performance score for 2018 was 70 points. And what that means is that if you scored 70 or above, not only did you get the maximum uh, upward adjustment available uh, for the 2018 reporting period, but you also got extra money as part of that uh, set-aside money that Congress put aside specifically for exceptional performers. So 84% of all clinicians scored 70 or above. 13% scored between 15.01 and 69.99. So they got an upward adjustment somewhere between, you know, zero and whatever the upward adjustment was. And then 2%, uh, as I said, received a negative payment adjustment. Uh, it's usually at this time that we would always discuss exactly what those upward adjustments were, because even though we say that for 2018, it could be as much as 5% or as low as minus 5%, Congress made the program budget neutral, which means that all the money that goes to the successful performers are divvied up from the money taken from the uh, people that got negative payment adjustments. So while the legislation says that we could give a payment up to 5%, um, that's not necessarily going to be the case because again, budget neutrality kicks in. <clears throat> so in terms of raw numbers, the total number of MIPS eligible clinicians uh, that got the positive adjustment is 889,995, so just under 890,000. Uh, the total number of MIPS who uh, eligible clinicians receive a neutral or just a, a positive payment adjustment, 872,000. 
qualifying AP or qualifying uh, APM participants. This is important as well because uh, this number, I think, almost doubled from last year, if I recur recall correctly. For those that are participating in an advanced uh, APM, so a model that's deemed advanced because it meets certain criteria, uh, specifically regarding quality measures, EHR usage, and the risk that is assumed by the model participants. Um, if in 2018, providers, individuals, or groups had a certain percentage of their Medicare beneficiaries or of their payments coming from Medicare Part B beneficiary patients, they would be a qualifying participant or a QP, which is great because they do not have to report to MIPS. There's an extra bonus that is available for QPs and APMs, um, and they also get the model-related uh, bonus as well. We always say that MIPS is the pathway to participation in an alternative payment model, and hopefully uh, in the not too distant future, an advanced alternative payment model. So to see those number of QPs go up is very encouraging for us. I mentioned the mean and the median score. And as you can see, nationally across the board, if we just look at the mean, and the mean again is just a fancier statistical word for average, for everybody, the average score was 86.96 out of 100 points. And again, you only needed 15 to avoid the payment adjustment for 2018. <clears throat> we break that down between those who are participating in an APM and those who were not participating in an APM. And as you can see, those that were in an APM were very high, 98.77. Those who were not in an APM still did very well. They still exceeded the exceptional performance score of seven, with a 79.07 um, score. The median scores are even higher. So everybody, um, almost everybody who was in an APM got 100 points. Uh, median, again, is just if you line up all of the scores from lowest to highest, where does the, where does the middle score fall? So as you can see, the median are you know, much higher than the mean, which usually happens in statistics. The reason why we break this down is that we have this year and next year, where we are allowed to arbitrarily set what that, um, what that composite score can be. So we said it was 15 in 2018, it's 45 in 2019, um, I believe it's 60 in 2020 and 2021. Starting in 2022, uh, by, by regulation, that composite score is no longer going to be set arbitrarily by CMS, but is going to be either the mean or the median of a previous participation period. So it's important that you take a look at this. And these are really good numbers, uh, especially related to the somewhat less, um, less stringent numbers that we were setting. But keep in mind that in the not too distant future, these are going to be around what the composite scores, what the total scores are going to have to be. So start you know, paying attention to these and making sure that your practices and see how you line up with these mean and median scores. We also have information as it relates to individuals that submitted by individuals versus those who submitted as part of a group. And as you can see, the groups fared uh, somewhat uh, better, both for the mean and the median. And we also break it down between large practices, rural practices, small practices, and then those that are considered small and rural. Uh, large practices, probably no surprise, with more resources 
uh, at their disposal, scored the best with a mean score of 92 and a median score of 100. Rural practices, we continue to be very encouraged that they are scoring so high. Uh, their median is almost uh, as high as the large practices uh, with a mean that is still well above the exceptional performance score. Uh, small practices, um, still their median scores are, are pretty good. Their mean scores you know, are a little bit lower, but again, still exceeding the total composite score. And we will talk about the specific uh, help and technical assistance that is available to small, underserved, and rural practices known as the SERS contractors, which hopefully you are aware of. This is an additional breakout of the payment adjustments based on whether you are a rural practice or a small practice. Uh, rural practices, again, this is pretty much keeping in line with the overall national averages. If you add 82 and 14, that's about, what, 90, almost 7% that are getting some type of uh, payment adjustment. Uh, we had a few that hit the 15 benchmark, 15 point benchmark on the nose, and then about 2% at a downward negative adjustment. And the small practices, again, fared um, not quite as well, but still um, a majority, a vast majority are getting a positive upward adjustment this year in 2020. So now let's move on to what you need to do for 2019. So we talked about 2018. 2019, the uh, participation year, obviously ended on December 31st, so we now have until March 31st to submit your data. So everything, again, one-stop shopping, everything's at the QPP portal. You just go to qpp.cms.gov. We make it very easy for you. The submission window is open. It is right at the front page. You don't even have to scroll. You just click sign in. And when you sign in, you do need your HARP account. So, and I'm sure, you know, since we've been talking with this group for three years and talking about data submission, um, I'm going to make the happy presumption that everybody has access and knows how to do so. If you do not, uh, what I would point you to is to this QPP access user guide that is hyperlinked on the left-hand side of the screen. The user guide is fantastic because um, if you, I, I actually think that I have, this is the content of the user guide. And it looks like a PowerPoint, a PDF file, but you can actually click through it to the sections that you need. And we break it down to either um, eligibility as it relates to participants who are in an APM, if you're in a virtual group, or if you're in a practice. And if you're in a practice, we also have, a, um, if you're reporting as an individual, you would just click on the practices and then you will see how you navigate to the individual if you're doing so. But this uh, user guide is very user-friendly. Uh, a lot of screenshots will tell you exactly what you need to submit. It even will go through specific errors that you might encounter if you're doing a manual upload of your data, uh, making sure that you have the right format of the files, for example. The other resources that are available, and again, I put the user guide up there first, um, if you look at the table, there are FAQs specific to this year's data submission. I mentioned that there are videos that we put up uh, and then different uh, selections. Also, if you are opting in, and we'll talk about opting in, you do have to make a proactive decision. If you are otherwise, um, 
if you met the low volume threshold so that you were excluded or that you were exempt from participating, but you want to opt in to get an upward adjustment, you do have to make uh, a specific election with that, and that will tell you how to do that. Also, if you're using the CMS web interface, and this will be for only for groups of 25 or more eligible clinicians, there are some useful videos as to how you participate with the web interface uh, and also the MIPS scoring guide. So again, a lot of information. Um, if you are the person that is responsible for doing the data submission, I just wanted to give you an idea of what it looks like. Unfortunately, I don't have dummy clinician uh, profile in order to do an actual demonstration of the presentation. Um, but if you have any specific questions, I know we had one that actually came in this morning that I do have feedback for. Uh, let me know because I do also have a contact at ONC that is very responsive to questions that we might have. Um, so let me know if anything, uh, if you run into any problems. I've not heard of any, I was on a call yesterday, I've not heard of any widespread problems with data submission, but that doesn't mean that they're out there. I just haven't heard them yet. I would be very interested to hear that if you are having any problems with your data submission, and let me know what they are so that I can get them down to Baltimore as quickly as possible because we are uh, under a deadline. Again, March 31st uh, is the deadline. So if there are any problems that you're encountering, please let me know about them. Okay, so let us move on to 2020. So this is year four of the program. On slide 20, it's the four performance categories. There are no changes here. Into, we're not changing the performance categories. We're not changing the names of the categories, nor are we changing the percentages. Uh, we have proposed a slight up increase to the cost percentage, but we are keeping everything as is. And the takeaway here is that for a majority of MIPS, uh, most of the stuff will be as is from 2019. There are some small changes uh, but most of the things that, uh, most of the requirements that you need to meet for 2020 in terms of reporting and what you need to submit are going to be the same as 2019. Uh, so it's 45% for quality, 15 for cost, 15 for improvement activities, 25 for promoting interoperability. There are going to be instances where either uh, you'll be automatically exempt from promoting interoperability. And for those of you who are new, that's the EHR portion or what you do with your computer uh, portion of the program. There are certain instances where you will automatically not have to do that or you can apply for an exemption. And we had a couple of questions that came in and I'll talk about that during the Q&A session. In those instances, that 25% in almost all cases will go to quality, and then your quality would be 70, 70 yeah, 70%, do some quick math there, uh, and then cost improvement activities would stay at 15 each. Timeline is the same. We've not made any adjustments to the timeline, so we do our performance in 2020. We look at a full year of data for quality and cost, and then your improvement activities and your promoting interoperability activities are any 90-day continuous period that you choose. They all must be in calendar year 2020. You have until March 31st of next year to do your data submission. So again, the same, same timeline. Then between April and late summer, we synthesize the feedback and we pr produce feedback reports. And when you get those feedback reports, that's when the clock starts if you want to 
uh, start an informal review if there is anything that looks askew in your feedback report that would affect your payment adjustment. And then those payment adjustments either upward or downward start on January 1st, 2022. And keep in mind that any payment, so when we talk about the payment adjustment that you are receiving now in 2020 for what uh, for your performance in 2018, that payment adjustment, whatever percentage you got, is just for 2020. In 2021, if you fared better, if you performed better in 2019, then you'll get a different higher percentage. So they are just year specific. So the big news that came out of the final rules that relates to MIPS is something that's going to be starting next year, and that is the MIPS value pathways or MVPs. You're going to be hearing a lot about MVPs. So we're in year four of the program. We've done a ton of listening sessions. Uh, we did a ton of listening sessions leading up to the development of the MIPS program, and we continue to engage with all of our clinicians and all of our partners. And what we've heard um, isn't really surprising. Uh, we heard that you know MIPS as it stands right now, very confusing. Uh, the reporting requirements are cumbersome. There didn't seem to be the prom we didn't really deliver on the promise of really bringing the old quality reporting programs, uh, be them, be they uh, PQRS, um, what else do we had, the value-based payment modifier, and meaningful use. When we promoted MIPS and when we rolled it out, we said it's all going to be one program, but the reality was you're still reporting for three different components of a program. You're reporting your quality measures. You are attesting to improvement activities, which wasn't even uh, a previous program. And you are reporting on promoting interoperability. Even though we did dramatically scale back the measures of promoting interoperability from what was part of meaningful use, it was still cumbersome. Uh, and was also uh, difficult for patients in order to make uh, performance comparisons. We are also uh, trying to make the information um, reader-friendly and user-friendly on Physician Compare, and we continue to increase or add to the information that we, are, that we are sharing with the public. So what we are trying to do in order to uh, continue our quest to lessen administrative burden uh, for all clinicians in all facets of the Medicare program, and also to start to move the uh, to move the ball uh, down the court from participating in MIPS as it stands now in the current structure and moving into a more uh, aligned per, uh, participation with alternative uh, payment models, we've developed the MIPS value pathways. And as you can see here on slide 24, uh, there are a couple of major uh, goals that we have with the MVPs. And again, removing barriers to APM participation, uh, moving away from siloed activities toward an aligned set of measure options that are more relevant to a clinician's scope of practice. Uh, so again, getting credit or reporting on measures that would be, I guess, giving you credit over the uh, different categories rather than having to report X number of measures for the different categories. Uh, promoting value by focusing on quality and cost measures and improvement activities uh, based on foundation of public health measures calculated from administrative claims, quality measures, and promoting interoperability concepts. What does that mean? 
Using uh, population health measures calculated from administrative claims-based quality measures, we do that to a small extent now in the MIPS program. There are measures that have been developed that we can, by uh, analyzing your claim submission, determine that you are meeting the, the gist of the measure. So by relying more on those measures that are population-based and that are administrative claims-based, means that you're going to have a lesser reporting burden when these MVPs are developed, which is the next bullet point, reducing reporting burden. And of course, making sure that the patient is the center of our work, that you're spending more time with your patient and not filling out paperwork and making sure that you're meeting all of the measurement requirements. So we are in the process of developing these MVPs uh, and the proposal uh, which was finalized was that we are going to be slowly implementing or, or introducing these measures starting next year. So starting in calendar year 2021, you will have the opportunity to choose um, from the MVPs that will be developed. Uh, I don't know which MVPs are currently under development specifically. What I can tell you is that we're going to be looking at specialty-specific MVPs and we're also going to be looking at diagnosis or um, what's the word? diagnosis or uh, diagnosis or condition. That's why I'm sorry, I can write down on the slide. Condition-specific measures. Um, we have a number of videos, or there is one video, at least one video, that is on the CMS website on the portal. If you want to take a look at that to give us an idea to give you an idea of what the framework is going to look like we do have a couple of examples specific uh, slide 26 gives us a general idea of what we're thinking of so if you look at the left the current structure of mix of MIPS, as you can see it's four siloed triangles which means quality promoting interoperability improvement activities and costs are all really in reality four separate programs that you're reporting Cost, of course, you're not proactively reporting. So we say that you know, you're proactively reporting for quality, promoting interoperability, and improvement activities. And as you can see, it could be anywhere up to 6, 12, 16, you know, 17, or 18 measures. And then more if you have other cost measures that apply to your scope of practice. So beginning in 2021, we're going to start to uh, put those quality improvement and cost activities together using your EHR system as the foundation and those population health measures so that in three to five years, it's going to be a fully implemented pathway um, with cost quality and uh, the improvement activities aligned uh, using your EHR system and promoting interoperability with, uh, as, our, as our foundation. So as I mentioned, we have a couple of examples. I'm not going to go through uh, these examples because I don't know that it's you know, germane to the group on the, on the call today. But this gives us just an idea of what we're thinking in terms of, and this is a lot of information on the slide and you probably can't read it. It's even difficult to read when you get the handout. Um, but basically for a surgeon, for example, uh, as you can see in the center of the slide, these could be some possible quality measures, improvement activities and cost measures that would apply to a surgeon and it would give you an idea of how they would start to be aligned uh, starting next year and then more fully aligned within three to five years. So this was a, an example that was specialty specific that we crafted for 
the proposed rules. We actually asked for comments on this example and also on diabetes. As I mentioned, there is a condition specific. So there could be any number of specialists that treat diabetes patients that would be able to choose this. We have specially specific measure sets on the quality side right now. This is something that we actually did back in the PQRS days. So we have had some history of putting measures together as they relate to specialties. We haven't done so um, specifically for condition-specific uh, conditions or condition-specific examples. So this will give you an example of that. So as I mentioned, what I'm hearing is that there are, I think, seven to nine that are currently under development. And my understanding is that anything that we would be proposing in terms of a pathway would be open to comment during the proposal period or the comment period for the proposed rule for the 2021 rule. That usually comes out sometime in June. So I would encourage you to keep an eye out for it. We push out, uh, CMS pushes out a lot of information and a lot of uh, announcements when that proposed rule comes out. I cannot emphasize enough how important it is that everyone, if you have the opportunity to comment on anything that CMS proposes, please do so. We do take your comments into consideration and uh, revisions are made between the proposal and the final rules based on what we hear. So don't think that your voices are not uh, heard, they are, and it's very uh, important. Also, if you as an organization, I don't know if you've been contacted, if you're working with, with CMS or any of the other de uh, measure development entities uh, for urology-specific urology MVPs, um, I believe that we do have a urology-specific measure set in the quality uh, category right now, so that's something that we definitely will be looking at. All right. Eligibility, we did not change any eligibility between 2019 and 2020. So all of the clinician types that are on slide 30 are part of the program. The six on the left-hand side were the original six from the beginning of the program. We added the five on the right uh, as of last year. Um, if there's any social workers on the phone, I don't think so. Keep your eye out because we had toyed with the idea of adding social workers last year, but because we didn't have enough quality measures, we decided not to do so yet. But we do have a social worker measure set, specialty specific measure set there. So if you know a social worker, tell them they might want to start, you know, finding out what this QPP stuff is about because they may be on the hook for it next year. Again, that's just what I'm thinking. I mentioned the low volume threshold determination. So you could be uh, not eligible to participate if you do not meet uh, some of the low volume th uh, threshold criteria. And again, these are not changing from 2019. So the three thresholds are in order to be included or to be eligible for the program. And this all pertains to Medicare Part B, traditional, so not Medicare Advantage, uh, professionals covered professional services. So you must bill more than $90,000 and you must have more than 200 Medicare Part B patients who are receiving covered professional services and more than 200 services. We emphasize it's covered professional services so that things like Part B drugs and labs, those are not included in these, in these counts. Um, so starting last year, we said that if you uh, exceed one or two 
of the of the low volume thresholds, then you can opt in. So this chart, and we used this last year, basically are all of the scenarios. The top chart means that you don't ex you don't exclude any of the three thresholds, so you cannot opt in. The bottom line is you do exceed all three of the thresholds, so you're required to participate. And I always give the caveat that required to participate in this context means that if you don't, you get a negative payment adjustment, not that you get kicked out of Medicare. So just make sure you keep that in mind. The middle four, one, two, three, four, uh, are situations in which, and there's three, mm -hmm. okay, middle three, situations where you exceed one or two of the scenarios. Actually, there's a chart where there is a fourth one, but that's not this one. Anyway, so you can either voluntarily report, which means you're submitting your data, uh, but you're not getting any payment adjustment because maybe you want to practice, maybe you're part of a group, et cetera, et cetera. But if you want to opt in, when I mentioned about going onto the portal and making an election, opting in means I'm otherwise excluded. I exceed one or two of these scenarios, but I want in because I want a payment adjustment. Because starting in 2020, there is no automatic update to the physician fee schedule between now and 2025. And that was part of the macro legislation that passed in 2015. So any increase to your Medicare reimbursement is going to come from MIPS or if you're in an APM. So that's why you may want to opt in. How can you check to see if you're eligible? Again, go to the QPP lookup, participation lookup. It's right on the portal. All you have to do is put in your MPI number, put in the MPI number of either the individual or the group. If you are in an individual that is tied to a group, you could be tied to more than one group uh, in the PACO system, all that information will come up and will tell you whether or not you have to participate. High level, over, high level overview of the MIPS categories. Again, the big takeaway here is there are no major changes. Uh, for quality, we are increasing the data completeness threshold to 70%, and we did get a question about that, and I have a partial answer um, for that. We'll talk about that. Um, we continue, we have a meaningful measures process where we um, remove measures that are no longer uh, appropriate for the program. Uh, cost, we added 10 new episode-based measures, including one that is urology-specific that I will give you some more information on. Improvement activities, uh, we make modifications to the uh, glossary of activities that are available. One big change is for groups that are participating. Um, we used to say that as long as one clinician in the group was doing the activity, the entire group got practice. Starting this year, at least half of the entire group must be participating, so we will revisit that. And promoting interoperability, the framework is staying the same. Uh, we made some changes to the opioid-related measures, but in terms of what you have to report and the scoring structure, we're not changing anything from last year. I'm going to quickly go over the um, each category. Uh, again, 45 for quality, 45% of your score. There are a total of 218 quality measures. You continue to report six. One has to be an outcome measure. If, less than six measures applied to your scope of practice, then you report on all the ones that do that do uh, pertain to your scope of practice. And I mentioned that there is a specially specific set of measures of which I believe urology is one. We got questions about bonus points. Bonus points uh, are available for 
outcome or patient experience uh, measures that are submitted after the first required outcome. So you have to do one outcome measure. If you submit an additional outcome measure or a patient experience, you could get two extra points. Uh, on one point for other high priority measures. Uh, small practice bonuses can still get six points. Uh, and that's automatic. We know who small practices are based on your enrollment information. Data completeness, uh, I'll talk about that a little bit in the, the uh, Q&A. 70% uh, for, uh, for Part B claims and also for QCDR, QCM, and ECQMs. Uh, for the web interface, there is a survey thing that you have to do, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Cost, 15%, we, as I said we, said, we thought about upping it to 20%. What I will tell you is that we are required, not next year, but in 2022, <clears throat> cost uh, will have to be 30% of your score. Uh, it was originally supposed to be 30% starting in 2019. Um, Congress and the Bipartisan Budget Act a couple years ago gave CMS additional flexibilities to um, slowly, more slowly increase the percentage of cost. Uh, but just know that for this year, 15% next year will probably be a little bit higher, but in 2022, it will be 30%. You don't report anything. We look at administrative claims. Uh, everyone, so long as you meet the, uh, the case minimum, is scored on Medicare spending for beneficiary and total per capita cost. We now have 18 episode-based measures. The eight uh, from last year, 10 were added this year. Um, we made some... Um, Small revisions on Medicare spending for beneficiary and the total per capita cost, which are listed here. So the total per capita cost and the eight, I'm sorry, uh, no, the revision, actually, I think I took the revisions out because they were very technical and I didn't know that they were going to apply to this for this group. But what I did add was the new urology specific cost-based measure. So this is new for 2021. So is renal or uteral stone surgical treatment measure? So some of the justification for the measure, and this is taken right from the specification sheet. Uh, we have about 23,000 Medicare beneficiaries back in 2013 that were inpatient hospital patients uh, that have a primary diagnosis of kidney stones and then an additional 1.1 million beneficiaries with kidney stones who are either in an ambulatory setting or an outpatient setting getting E&M care. So total Medicare expenditures for these beneficiaries uh, exceeds $1 billion each year, and that's you know, specifically just for kidney stones. So the measure evaluates the risk-adjusted cost to Medicare for Bennies who receive surgical treatment uh, for stones during the performance period. Uh, and the period would be 90 days from be 90 days from the uh, from a trigger uh, to an, an event that, that triggers an event or an episode of care through 30 days after. So again, it's 30 days uh, prior to the trigger and then 30 days after. What exactly are those triggers? We look at procedural codes. So they are the uh, HICPICS codes that are listed on the screen here. If it is occurring as an inpatient, then it's the DRG code 668, 669, or 670. 
the clinicians who are attributed for this particular, I just want to make sure, okay. Clinicians who are attributed are any clinicians who build for one of those codes uh, for the episode group on the day of the procedure for outpatient procedures or during the inpatient stay for inpatient procedures. So all of these are, and for any measures, and we're going to get into some of this in the Q&A too, um, any measure, if it applies when you, when you are trying to decide if a measure is applicable to your practice or to what you're billing, everything is based on HICS-PIX or DRG codes. And what we advise everybody to do is to make sure you go and look at the specification sheets for any of the measures, whether they're cost measures or quality measures, because we have a comprehensive list of all the associated HICS-PIX and DRG codes that you should be able to make that determination. Slide 45 has the uh, costs that are included in the measure. So both pre and post-operative management, DME supplies, uh, preoperative stent or the catheter placement, follow-up visits uh, related to a post-operative plan, uh, other ER visits or hospitalizations. On this link is the link is the actual uh, spec sheet for the new cost measure. Uh, some of these cost measure uh, spec sheets have just gone up recently, so if you haven't been on the website recently, you may not have seen it yet, but hopefully you should be able to link it uh, right from this uh, presentation. If you can't and you can't find it on the portal, just send me an email. I'll give you my email address at the end of the presentation. Um, I'll be happy to send that to you. Um, Improvement activities, like I said, nothing is changing in terms of what you need to report in terms of improvement activities. Uh, we still have medium and high-weighted activities. Medium are worth 10 points. High-weighted activities are worth 20 points. You want to score 40 points to get full credit. If you're a small practice, non-patient facing, or in your rural area, then you, are, uh, you have to report less. Technically, the way we say it is that if you meet those criteria on the last bullet point, then your point values are doubled, which in reality means you're reporting half of the activity numbers. So it's kind of like however you want to take a look at it. It's all through attestation. Uh, and we'll talk about, uh, we had a question about attestation of improvement activities, and I'll go over that in the Q&A section. We made a small uh, revision to the definition of rural areas. I don't know if we have any rural uh, clinicians on the phone, but basically starting in 2020, we're going to be looking at the zip code file that the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy provides to us to uh, determine if a practice or a clinician is in a designated rural area. And I mentioned that we are increasing the definition of group as it pertains to improvement activities, so at least 50% of the clinicians in the group and again, a group is the NPIs that are assigned to the TIN. So that's how we determine the group, and that's for group or virtual group. That's going from one single, one single clinician who is doing all the activity and taking it for the team and getting the team credit, so now half of the group must do so. Uh, promoting interoperability, again, good news is, is that we're not changing the structure of the program. We made some pretty big changes from 2018 to 2019. Uh, the structure is staying intact. It'll be 25% of your score. 2015 edition of CERT must be used. That should not be an issue for anyone now because 2015 edition CERT was required last year. 
We're down to four objectives, uh, e-prescribing, health information exchange, provider patient exchange, and public health and clinical data exchange. Uh, and then under those four objectives are probably a total of six to seven measures that you're reporting. And for those of you that were with us for the Meaningful Use Days, that is a far cry from these 16 measures that were required. So hopefully people are finding that less burdensome. We are also easing up on the definition of a hospital-based group uh, in order for them to be automatically reweighted. So what that means is that if now 75% of the MPIs in a group, and again, we look at a group by the tax identification number, if 75% of them meet the definition of a hospital-based individual MIPS clinician, if 75% meet that definition, then the group is considered hospital-based, which means your 25% gets reweighted to quality and you are not uh, on the hook to do promoting interoperability. As I mentioned, there were some opioid-related measures that we implemented last year. One of those has been removed completely, and the other is um, there for bonus points. And I believe the one that we removed was the um, reviewing the opioid management agreement. I don't have them in front of me. Uh, and then the one you get bonus points is consulting the PDMP for opioid treatment. I will clarify that because I want to make sure I have that right. Uh, quickly, third-party intermediaries. Uh, so these are QCDRs, registries, and anyone else that is working on your behalf to submit data for your practice. Uh, the big news here is that starting in 2021, uh, all registries, whether they're qualified registries or qualified clinical data registries, must be able to support all three categories for which you have to submit data to CMS. So that means that they have to have the capabilities to submit quality data, improvement activities data, and promoting interoperability data. So in order for, and we will be um, updating our requirements for them to be certified. Uh, also, they have to be giving enhanced performance feedback they have to be able to allow you to see how you fare with other clinicians, your peers, that are part of those registries. And also, any measures that QCDR has developed, because we do include QCDR-developed measures in the program, must be fully uh, tested and vetted before they are nominated to CMS for inclusion. So again, uh, for those of you that are using QCDRs, uh, some big changes are coming up in 2021. I mentioned uh, for 2020, the performance threshold is 45 points. I think I might have misspoken earlier and said it was 60. So it's 45 points in 2020. We already finalized that it's going to be 60 points next year. Uh, that's not up for a proposal. Uh, but again, 45 this year, 60 next year, and then in 2022, it's going to be the mean or median. Uh, the additional performance threshold is going to be 85 points. So we went from 70 points for exceptional performance in 2018, 75 points in 2019, 85 points in 2020. And then the payment adjustments, and these are the highest payment adjustments that Congress set. So as, as much as 9% or as low as 9%. And again, caveat here, budget neutrality, likely not to approach 9%. But the other side of that equation is, if you don't do anything, it will definitely be negative 9%. So 
submit your data. This graph on slide 57 will show you what type of adjustment you get based on where you fall in the continuum of scores from zero to 100 points. Uh, and again, uh, just some adjustments between 2019 and 2020. Hopefully they make sense. I mentioned the technical support, the small solo practices or SOARs continue to have free technical assistance for those that require it for small underserved and rural areas. And then our general technical support, the QPP uh, Payment uh, Service Center, 866-288-8292. You can also email us at qpp at cms.hhs.gov. So that's the most important slide of the slide deck. As I jokingly tell everybody, the start at the end of my uh, at the end of my presentations, because that's how you get in touch with me after the presentation ends. So Jennifer, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through some of the Q and A's that came in and attempt to give the answers that I can. It is 1:57. So um, Jennifer, I got about 12 or 13 questions. I got decent answers for most of them. Some of them I will tell you that I have to uh, continue to confer with my partners. So um, there was a question that came in about uh, one of the improvement activities, and that is for uh, provide 24-7 access to MIPS-eligible clinicians or groups who have real-time access to patients' medical records. So this is... Um, IAEPA1. So the question is, do over 50% of our physicians need to offer same day or next day access, or do we need to have examples that they have had or that they had same day access? So I looked up the actual, I have the specifications, and it is, um, you know, 50%, 24-7 access. So when I asked this, I guess what you have to keep in mind, I alluded to this earlier, with the improvement activities, you're doing an attestation. So you're choosing the improvement activities for the activities that you're doing in the scope of your practice in your offices, uh, and you're attesting that you're doing this. So what we were talking about was whether or not, what does that actually mean, that you have to have examples? So think of it this way. You have, to, you have to meet the specifications of the improvement activity. So you have to have 24-7 access to your patient. Now, you can decide how you're going to meet that requirement, whether or not it's a call service, if it's a portal or whatnot. But so long as you meet the specifications, and the important part is so long as you can document it in the case of a review or an audit. We are not going to tell you specifically how you have to provide 24-7 access or what an example is that you have same-day access, but you have to be able to document that however you're going to do that in your practice, that in the event of an audit, that you're going to be able to show that. Because again, with the improvement activities, you are attesting that you are doing it. <clears throat> Uh, we got another question about uh, providers consulting a state PDMP, a prescription uh, drug monitoring plan or program, uh, when prescribing opioids. The specs say clinicians would attest to 75% review of applicable patients' history performance. Is there a minimum number that must be done for the IA, for the improvement activity? Um, as far as we are aware, there is no minimum number. The only time that we ever talk about case minimum numbers are for the cost measures. 
excuse me, so for the quality measures and for the improvement activities, generally speaking, there are no case members. So it would be 75% of the applicable, the applicable cases for your practice. For the PI, for the public health exchange measure, as a urologist, can I report to AQUA, that's the AUA's QCDR, and then get an exemption from the second registry? I can't report to immunization in other state registries like that. So this is the one where I got, I think, a partial response. And I'm just going to read the response with the, um, with the you know, I guess, with the, with the asterisk that I need to do additional follow-up. But this is what I got back. Um, and this is from Baltimore. They can't just be submitting their QPP data to the QCDR for data submission and have it count for the public health registry submissions. Public health registries must be sponsored by governmental entities. And that's a question that I would have because I don't know the, the details of the Aqua uh, registry. She goes on to say, if they are submitting data related to a clinical condition, then ongoing submission to Aqua may count as submission to a clinical data registry. They need to look at the exclusions for the other registries and see if one of the exclusions applies to them. If yes, then they can claim it. So that's the response I got back. I'm not exactly sure I fully understand that because I don't do much work with the data exchanges. So Jennifer, you and I may have to have a follow-up uh, email, maybe um, talk to the person who asked the question directly to see if we can get more information. Are improvement points still given in quality? What about complex patient bonus points? Uh, the answer to that is yes. You can get up to 10 additional points based on your improvement in the quality performance category from the previous year. So that started, I believe, in 2019. We originally said that we were going to do improvement points for quality and cost, but because we're still tinkering with cost in terms of adding uh, new measures and whatnot, and because we're not fully um, increasing the percentage, we decided that we weren't going to do cost improvement yet but we do continue to offer quality improvement. In terms of the complex patient bonus, uh, we did finalize our proposal to continue the application of five additional bonus points to the overall composite performance score. So that's your, your, your total final score. For complex patients based on the combination of dual eligibility ratio and the average hierarchical conditions category or the HCC risk score. Uh, and if we go back, I think two rules ago, we go into the uh, definitions of how we calculate that. Uh, won't go into that uh, on this call, just know that we are continuing to offer those bonus points. When will the specs be available for measure 476? They are up there now. So 476 is, uh, this is a long one. International Prostate Symptom Score, or IPSS, or American Neurological Association Symptom Index, AUASI, change six to 12 months after diagnosis of benign prostatic hyperplasia ECQM. So that is up there. It's the percentage of patients with an office visit within the measurement period and with a new diagnosis of clinically significant benign prostatic hyperplasia who have International Prostate Symptom Score, or American Neurological this is why I miss Dr. Connors, because she'd be able to talk <laughs> circles around me about this, but uh, with an improvement in three points. So the specs are up there. I do have a link to the specs if you can't find it. I actually did have to 
Uh, it took me some digging around to actually find it. So Jennifer, I will send a link to the specs. And if you can send this out, um, that might be easier because it did take me uh, some time to actually find the, spec the specification. Is the PI, it's the provider or the promoting interoperability, uh, promoting interoperability hardship exemption available in 2020? If yes, do I need to, need to apply? So the hardship exemption will be available in 2020. The application process has not opened yet, so you cannot apply. I don't know when in the year you can apply. I know, I think that you now have until the end of the year to do that. I, I don't know exactly when they open up that portal, probably after the data submission. We can only accept you know, so many things at once, so it will probably be sometime in the spring. What I will tell you, and this comes up with another question, um, if I was granted an exclusion for promoting an interoperability measure in 2019, do I have to request this again in 2020? And the answer is yes. So any exemption you get, even if it's a re automatic reweighting that I mentioned earlier, your, your situation could have changed, your group situation could have changed such that reweighting could have uh, applied in 2019, but maybe not in 2020. So any type of reweighting or exemption is specific for that year. If you got a reweighting or an exemption based on an application, and you can do that, you can apply for an application or via application if you are a MIPS eligible clinician in a small practice, if you are using decertified EHR technology, you have insufficient internet connectivity, extreme and uncontrollable circumstances, that's everyone's favorite, or a lack of control over the availability of CERT. Those are the categories for which you can proactively submit an application to be ex exempt from promoting interoperability and have that reweighting. If you did that in 2019 and you were um, accepted, congratulations. You either have to uh, report on promoting interoperability in 2020 or apply again for the exclusion. Is there any data available on how well people in virtual groups have scored? So the, the information that I shared in the beginning of the presentation was what we have right now for 2018. And the only breakdown that we did in terms of groups was differentiate between large groups, small groups, and rural groups. I asked about this and they said that we are going to have a QPP, a fuller 2018 experience report, they call it, uh, later on this year and we may be including data on virtual groups. Um, I can't make a promise because I don't know what's gonna be in that report. Um, I would think that they would want to because um, you know, I think we're, we're pushing the idea of virtual groups. So hopefully that will be included. So more to come on that, hopefully. How does CMS determine if an outcome measure is available for a particular provider or group? Um, so at first when I saw this, I thought it was the same question about a case minimum, whether or not you had to have a certain number of cases before a measure was applied. And my original response was that there are no case minimums as it, re as it, re as it uh, pertains to the quality measures, because we're talking about outcome measures. Uh, but then when I conferred with uh, Dr. Wolf, um, she had a different take and is probably what you were getting, what the person was getting at. Um, so we look at the scope of practice um, and the claims that are submitted. Remember, I, I told you that for all of our measures, whether they're outcome measures, process measures, specialty measures, if you look at the specification sheets, we have a list of the codes, the diagnosis codes 
that pertain to that measure. So what we do is basically look at the scope of practice to see if any given measure could have applied to the patients that you are seeing based on the diagnosis codes that you are billing. So we had something that was called uh, a, a validation process, and I, the actual validation, the data validation process under the value-based modifier program, where there was a two-step process. We revised that validation process somewhat, but we do have the capability to look at the claims that are submitted by TIN and MPI to determine whether or not a, a, a particular measure could apply to the scope of practice. So that's how we do that. If you have any questions, if you have an outcome measure in mind, my first uh, suggestion would be to look at those spec sheets. And those are easy, more easily to find on the, on the portal. If you can't find them, email me and I'll point you into that direction. How does CMS figure out data completeness? So this one is, again, one that I'm gonna to have to get a couple of um, more people to weigh in on. So data completeness depends on how you're submitting your data. So Medicare, if you're using claims, that's easy because just the conversation that I just had, we know the codes that you are submitting and the services that you are providing so we can tell whether or not you are submitting 70% of your Medicare Part B patients for, a, for an applicable measure. So if you, if you pick measure A, Measure A has all these codes. We can look at administrative closed data analysis and see whether or not 70% of those patients that have those codes are being reported on. The part that I'm not sure is when you are using a QCDR or other third-party entity because that is your total patient population. So that's the part that I still need to clarify as to how we verify whether or not you're meeting that 70%. So it is 70% for QCDRs, ECQMs, and Medicare Part B. Uh, I mentioned the web interface. So in case, the web interface, I mentioned that there's a sampling requirement for the group's Medicare Part B patients. You have to populate data fields on the interface for the first 248 consecutively ranked and assigned Medicare beneficiaries in the order in which they appear in the group sample for each module or measure. And if you have less than 248, then you have to report on all of them. If you're doing the CAPS for MIPS survey measure, which I have not gotten many questions on, um, then you have to meet the sampling requirements for the group's Medicare Part B patients. But again, I think the crux of the question is like, well, how do we determine whether or not you're hitting that 70% mark? Easy to answer for Medicare Part B claims. I'm still waiting to get um, some feedback and some guidance on the other part. So I will uh, hopefully have more to share with you on that soon. Does the exceptional performance threshold include bonus points? So yes, so the bonus points uh, there are some bonus points that are added strictly to the quality score, and there are some bonus points that are added at the end after all the, all the categories are added together and you get your total composite score. There's you know, a couple of ways you get bonus points at the end. So whatever that score is after all the points have been added on, that is your score, and that determines whether or not you exceeded the threshold and whether or not you exceeded the exceptional performance threshold. How will I know if I have enough attributed cases to get a cost score? Again, the same thing, the cost, all the cost measures, 
have associated codes, so you should be able uh, to do an analysis uh, on the diagnosis codes that are associated with that cost measure to see if you meet the case minimum. And the case minimums, I believe, are either 20 or 35, depending on the cost measure. The, the case minimums are relatively low, I believe, <clears throat> but you can uh, figure that out by looking at the associated codes. Uh, so let's go in. Okay, so we talked about that one. Uh, we did the public exchange question, and Jennifer, I think that you had another one that I sent to you this morning that you wanted to put up on the slide deck. Do I just stop sharing my screen? Um, we'll, yeah, we'll take care of that. Okay, so I'm going to stop sharing. I'm assuming everyone has my email address. And if we'll not, send that to everybody with the yeah, post with materials the as well. Okay. Nope, nope. Let me do that. All right, so we'll just be a second here to pull up that slide. Okay. All right, so the question was, go ahead, Patrick. No, the question go ahead. Feel free, take it. No, go ahead, I insist. All right, so the question is, we are trying to submit our 2019 promoting operability data and need to generate a CERT ID code. We use Eurochart. The CHPL CERT site will not allow me to generate the CERT code because Eurochart presents as 93% in the system. Can you advise how to troubleshoot this issue? Yes, and uh, as I was telling the folks here in the room, this is actually an ONC issue, Office of National Coordinator. And luckily, I had an old CMS colleague who's now an ONC that uh, responded to me uh, quite uh, quickly. This, I actually uh, sent this to him at 10.30 this morning and I got this response back. Um, so basically he gives a, a citation on the EHR certification ID in the CHAPL, we call it CHAPL, C-H-P-L, public user guide on uh, page 23. So if you can hopefully, um, Jennifer, you make sure you share this as well so that link should work. And then more, uh, he gives a little bit more information on the second bullet point. Uh, so I can't specifically speak to this because we don't do the certification here at CMS, but I wanted to make sure that the person who answered this at least got um, some of the links that ONC was able to share with us, at least as a starting point. And I'm guessing that if you still are having uh, issues, because I think in my email exchange they said that this isn't the first time they're hearing about this issue, um, if this does not work, uh, you can reach out to me directly, and I will uh, make sure that the folks at ONC are aware that this continues to be an issue. Thank you, Patrick. That would be, I'm sure, a great help to those folks. So we'll let people know that. We have had some additional questions come through, so we'll pose them to you. If you're not able to answer them, we will get the responses to everybody who's participating in the webinar today. So number one, can you explain what has to be reported for an NPI associated to an APM TIN? 
What has to be reported? Can you read, can you say that again? Sure. Can you explain what has to be reported for an NPI associated to an APM tin? All right, so I believe the question is if you are an individual clinician and you're part of an APM, what is the responsibility for that individual clinician to report uh, on their own versus what the APM is going to report? I would, that's my assumption too. Okay. We actually made some changes, and for time's sake, I actually, um, and I always do this, uh, I took those slides out of the slide deck. Uh, Jennifer, send me that because um, I can actually, I believe that we have specific fact sheets that go into detail as to the changes that were made. I don't want to uh, give uh, bad information over the phone, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that we have that at the ready. Okay. Sure. We'll connect you with the person that asks that as well, and then we'll provide the answer to everybody else who might be interested. Moving on, will the third-party intermediaries be required to allow physicians to choose the quality activities they want to do? Uh, that is a good question. I have not heard that specific issue brought up. I don't know if the uh, QC, I don't know if, I don't know um, whether or not the QCDRs are going to say these are the measures that were approved. This is what is part of the of the product, and you have to choose them. Or if there is going to be some options for uh, variation. I did not see that that was part of the language and what was changed. I believe that what we were focused on on the CMS side was making sure that they have the cap that they will have the capability starting in 2021 to report on the three quality categories. The extent to which we go into details as to how that reporting must be offered to the clinician, I don't think we went into that detail, but again, that's something that I can I could check into. Okay, thank you. Is this is the all-cause readmission measure still around in 2020? All-cause readmission is for certain groups of a certain size, uh, and I, I have to go back and get the specifications, uh, if they meet certain case minimum standards. And that is one of those um, population health measures that we measure uh, based on claims analysis that's automatically done for groups to which the measure pertains. All right, so I'm assuming that if the person knew about this measure to begin with, it probably still, they know enough about it that it probably still applies to them. So that mm -hmm. probably answers their question. And Jennifer, if I could ask you, even before answering some of these questions, if you could just send me um, like a, a, a copy of everything that came into the chat room because I'd like to see all the questions and um, I will try to get even the ones that I'm answering just to follow up to make sure that I'm sure. answering them correctly. Happy to do that. Okay, next. If CMS removes the measure that I've been using for years, how does this impact my improvement score? Um... I believe that's that's another good question. I, I don't want to say that you would get you would not get any bonus points because I know that we do 
Um, there is a process when we remove a measure that, and it used to be there was like a four-year process and it had to do with benchmarking and kind of winnowing down the amount of points that you can earn for it. But as it relates specifically to the improvement score, uh, that's something that I will that I will also check into. All right, thank you. Okay, the urology specialty measure set has 21 measures. Do I need to report on all of them or just six? Just six. Okay, great. One of our providers is a member of several practices. Does he need to submit with each practice? Yeah, so um, we identify a participant in the program uh, with by a combination of MIPS and I'm sorry, MIPS NPI TIN. So it would depend on uh, if he is part of a group. When we say part of a group for purposes of QP of quality payment program, that their NPI is is tied to the TIN. Uh, his information would be included in in each group. All right. When you go in, and actually, that person, if you put in your individual MPI into that lookup status tool that I that I show that's on the QPP portal, it will show you all of the groups that that person is attributed to and what options they would have for reporting. All right, well, that should simplify it for people trying to answer that question. Moving on, for the low volume lookup tool, can I look up our group at once or do I have to do each person separately? For the low volume, uh, for the participation? Uh, yes, I'm sure that's what they mean. Yeah, yeah, because there isn't a low, well, actually the participation status tool, I believe will tell you whether or not the individual or the group uh, exceeds or meets the low volume threshold. So you can put in the group NPI number and it'll show the group. If you do it the other way, the individual, you put in like one of the individuals, it'll show all the groups that the individual is attributed to. Okay. But each group, again, it's it's based on the TIN. So if you have five groups that have five different TINs and therefore five different MPI numbers, you would have to look them up individually. Okay. So this person is asking, can I report quality through claims, promoting interoperability through our EHR, and improvement activities through a QCDR? Yes. Okay. Yes, you are still allowed to report through multiple reporting mechanisms. And that's why, for example, we have, you know, we have different definitions for data completeness because you have Medicare Part B claims, QCDR, et cetera, et cetera. All right, and then our last question, unless we get some in the next few minutes. We have one provider who qualifies for the low reporting threshold. Must he opt in, or if we submit data for him, will CMS automatically score him? Well, so he has to make sure that he exceeds uh, one, at least one of those thresholds, the, the billing threshold, the number of patients, or the number of services. 
if he just submits the data, they're going to think that he's voluntary, voluntarily reporting and he's not going to get an adjustment. You have to go into the portal and the um, user guide that I showed, there's a section on how you opt in. You have to opt in in order to be uh, eligible for a payment adjustment. Okay, thank you. Okay, like I said, that was it. So unless we get something really soon, we'll just, we want to first of all, thank you, Patrick, for all your um, advice today and your help. This has been very informative and I know we've been getting a lot of um, comments thanking you on the chat line as well, so we'll pass those on. Great, so, thank you. Um, so on behalf of the AUA, we want to thank all of those who joined us today for the webinar and of course, again, graciously thank Patrick for lending his expertise for this event. We have presented a lot of information here today, and the resources will be available on the AUA's website, but they're of course also available at qpp.cms.gov. Um, additionally, feel free to reach out to the AUA at any time with questions. The easiest way to do so is to send them to quality at auanet.org. So again, everyone, thank you for participating. We wish you a good day. Thank Thanks, you. everyone.